Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. It's your career. Own it with Appreciate. Build the real-time story of your most valuable accomplishments, as told by those who know you best. Download Appreciate now in the iTunes App Store. Smart contracts are on the rise, and that trend will only continue. Security has become an absolute necessity, and QuantStep is the standard for smart contract security for the blockchain. With a team of security experts dedicated to defeating the bad actors, QuantStep is the gold standard for safer, more reliable smart contracts. Find out more at quantstamp.com. My guests today are Yaya Fanusi, Director of Analysis at the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and Tom Robinson, Chief Data Officer and Co-Founder of blockchain analytics firm Elliptic. Welcome, Yaya and Tom. Thank you. Great to be here. Hi, Laura. Yaya, let's start with you. What's your background and how did you get into crypto? So I have a background uh, as a counterterrorism analyst. Um, I actually started several years ago at the Central Intelligence Agency. I was hired as an economic analyst and then got into counterterrorism. And when I left the agency, I worked in financial asset recovery, basically um, working with a team to identify assets that were kleptocratic assets that were uh, hidden around the globe. And while I was doing that, I got connected to uh, FDD, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is a national security nonpartisan think tank here in Washington, D.C., and became the director of analysis for this new center, which focuses on um, looking at economic security and U- U.S. national security issues. And um, so since uh, I got involved with FDD back in 2015, um, I started researching, um, developing and new emerging uh, illicit finance threats and risks. And that sort of led me to crypto, just sort of being very curious about how crypto was being used by illicit actors. And for the past couple of years, I've been uh, doing some deep dives uh, and helping to engage policymakers on the risks and the benefits of the technology. And Tom, what is your background and how did you get into crypto? So originally I was a physicist, so I did a PhD in physics. Um, so I was specializing in atomic and laser physics. Um, I was trying to build an X-ray laser. Um, so I did that for about four years, um, eventually sold out and went to work in finance. And then in about 2011, I heard about Bitcoin from a, an economist friend, became fascinated in the technology and eventually persuaded a couple of friends to co-found Elliptic with me. And so we're really passionate about helping cryptocurrencies to go mainstream. And the key issue that we saw was holding that back was the, the criminal use of cryptocurrencies. So our mission as a company is to work to detect and prevent the criminal use of cryptocurrencies, which we do in two main ways. So first of all, we work with law enforcement agencies to help them to trace cryptocurrency transactions that originate in criminal activity. And we also work with financial institutions to prevent proceeds of crime and crypto from being laundered through their platforms. So when we say a financial institution, that can mean everything from a, a small cryptocurrency exchange to a, to a multinational bank. Um, so we've been doing that for about five years now, work with some of the largest law enforcement agencies and cryptocurrency exchanges in the world. I love it. I feel like you two would make great characters for some future movie about crypto. It's like ex-CIA, <laughs> ex-physicists working on lasers. Um, <laughs> so you two co-authored a study on Bitcoin laundering that came out earlier this year. And before we actually dive into the details of that study, how big of a problem is laundering with crypto? So I think it's becoming an increasingly important problem. 
So in our study, we were looking at funds originating from cybercriminal activity, such as dark marketplaces, ransomware attacks, thefts from Bitcoin exchanges, which in itself is a big problem. I think what we're starting to see in addition to this is proceeds of crime from non-cybercriminal activity to start being laundered through cryptocurrencies and other crypto assets. So I think it's starting as liquidity increases in these assets, then the scale of the problem is really increasing. And do you have any numbers that you can offer? I'll jump in here. I mean, Tom may want to add to this, but actually this was an issue that we dealt with when we you know, started looking at the data because there's always this um, desire to, to to list a number, how much is being laundered through crypto or through Bitcoin. Um, we only looked at Bitcoin. We looked at it from, we looked at transactions uh, from 2013 and 2016. And it was interesting because we set up front that, you know, our study was looking at data, but we were not assessing the total or estimating the total amount of laundering that that is occurring because that's really a very, um, it's very difficult, just a complicated thing to try to actually pin down. Um, I think sometimes when you hear people talking about actual numbers, they're you know, pretty much guesstimates. Uh, we decide we took the tack of looking at actual transactions um, coming emanating from specific um, illicit markets, darknets, uh, darknet markets, and and similar. Uh, illicit sources, and then just identifying how much of that um, or out of the amounts going into conversion services like exchanges, um, how much of that uh, specifically was was illicit. So uh, we don't, we're not saying that, uh, that there is X amount of laundering happening in crypto, but we're providing with the study um, an assessment of trends that have happened emanating from dark, dark markets, patterns, geographical changes the U.S. versus Europe versus Asia. And that's what we were really trying to do because so much of the conversation in this space um, lacks data and people don't actually point to transactional data. And that's what we were trying to do with the study. I did see a number that I think a director of Europol gave, but it sounds like you're saying that that is probably some sort of estimate that maybe isn't based in really, I guess, detailed research. So, so one figure we did um, provide was that um, less than 1% of the funds going into these services, these exchange services, originated directly from these identifiable criminal entities. And I think that's an important figure because um, these are funds that the exchange in theory could identify as being um, illicit through software like ours. And so it shows you the level of criminal funds going into those exchanges, which could be avoided. Okay. So, so maybe we can, I guess, hang on to that a little bit. Although I do wonder if in the year 2017, if that changed, because the, since the years of your study cover 2013 to 2016, I feel like that was a much different time in crypto because everything changed last year. But yeah. why don't we dive into the details of your study? So, you know, obviously you mentioned that you were looking at very specific transactions that are going from these known addresses um, to other services. But is that how you would define money laundering in crypto generally? Or was that just for research purposes? Yeah, I am I actually would say that it's interesting you pointed to the shift you know, money laundering generally is a you know, multi-layered process, right? That involves you know taking illicit proceeds, putting them in the uh, you know the, the either the banking system or putting them in, in another business, uh, moving them, layering them, and you know it's a very you know a process where you're going in between different ecosystems. Whereas with Bitcoin, as we looked at it, you know we're really talking about just one ecosystem. So I think we have to think about laundering a little bit differently. It's a sort of a different framework. The interesting thing is, um, you know, maybe last year, for example, the question might have come up, well, will different illicit actors use, and this is, this is actually shifting a bit from our, from our study, but I, I hope you don't mind me just sort of going on a bit of a tangent. You know, people would ask, you know, are 
let's say drug cartels using are they money money laundering through bitcoin right and you know we may assess that you know a lot of you know drug cartels aren't necessarily going to be exchanging uh, they're not going to be shifting to bitcoin when they have all these other methods of doing laundering but i think something that i've noticed the past 6 to 7 months there've just been more reports of maybe not shifting to crypto to launder illicit proceeds right if if you're you know go from the fiat world but actually experimenting um using accessing crypto as part of the process of shifting funds moving funds so i think we have to look at crypto as being another toolkit uh, for laundering for you know for for from the perspective of illicit actors who are looking for different ways to mix and move funds around so in a way the way we should maybe think of your study is that you are looking at a subset of the type of money laundering activities that could be done in crypto. And so your findings are sort of focused around around that one subset? Yeah. So I think we're focus, focusing here on what we call Bitcoin laundering. And this is where the illicit proceeds have originated in Bitcoin. So for example, ransomware or a dark marketplace, the actual activity has been in Bitcoin, as opposed to generic money laundering. So for example, if an organized crime gang in Europe is selling drugs for cash, and then is trying to transfer that cash back to Colombia, um, they might use Bitcoin as a means to transfer that value. But the, the funds didn't originate in cryptocurrency originally. Okay, so what were the biggest takeaways from your study? Well, there were a few. I mean, again, looking at the 2013 to 2016 timeline, some not surprising, like, um, as Tom mentioned, that, you know, darknet markets being the, the main origin of, uh, of most of these illicit funds. Uh, but what was really interesting from a policy perspective was one, the big, difference between laundering that we saw on European exchanges versus North American exchanges. There was a, a significant gap. And I think that was one, that, that was probably one of the biggest takeaways. I mean, evidence very clear, you know, by looking at the data that there was just much more illicit activity happening um, on European platforms. And why do you think that was the case? Because I also noticed that and thought that was super interesting, but I'm not sure of why. Was it really kind of, well, I had one theory, but I'm interested to hear your take. I think we concluded that one possible reason for this was the the difference in regulatory responses to, to cryptocurrencies. So in the US, FinCEN back in 2013 issued guidance that Virtual currency exchanges, as they called them, were money transmitters and were therefore subject to anti-money laundering and um, CFT requirements. So, for example, exchanges had to identify who their customers were through KYC processes, had to submit suspicious um, transaction reports to regulators. And I think that probably did have a, a huge impact and prevented criminals from cashing out to some extent through um, exchanges based in the U.S., um, there was no such uh, move in Europe. Um, so exchanges were free to operate without identifying any of their clients. And that's only changed very recently. So the, the fifth anti-money laundering directive has now been finalized in the EU, which means that virtual currency exchanges and custodial wallet services now will have to identify their customers, will have to submit suspicious transaction reports. And so I would hopefully see that making a big difference to these figures. But those controls still won't uh, come into force until probably the end of next year. One other theory that I had was that I wondered what percentage of those transactions were going through BTCE, which came down last summer, because they were such a sketchy exchange. So was that kind of a huge, were they, or was that one exchange accounting for a huge percentage of these transactions? Yeah, I think so, Tom. I don't know if you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yes, um, there were a, a few um, big players who contributed a lot of that. Yeah. So there, are, there were a few bad actors who were disproportionately um, affected that figure. Oh, interesting. Something else that surprised me when I was looking at your study is that a huge percentage of these money launders were directly moving their dirty coins to an exchange rather than using a mixer or tumbler first. Why do you think they would do that? Just because they knew that these exchanges didn't care? or I think back in 
2013, which is when this the period of this study started, people just weren't aware of how transparent Bitcoin is. There weren't the same tools available to exchanges or law enforcement that are now available, and therefore the risk of sending your your, your dirty funds straight to an exchange was much lower. And we should also note, though, I mean, so that's true, and and also we did find that gambling sites and mixers, as you might expect, did have a high proportion of illicit funds going through them. So it was sort of evidence that you know people do use these tools to um, to, to launder to launder funds before they send them elsewhere. Yeah, I guess I would have thought it would be a much higher percentage than it was, but. Something I was curious about is, have you guys looked into whether or not any ICOs have been used for money laundering? Yes, that's something we have looked into. We have seen evidence that uh, the proceeds of some criminal activity have been fed into ICOs. Yes, Um, not on a large scale at the moment, but we have seen it happen, um, which makes sense. What does that mean? Meaning that the people who are trying to invest uh, to to get new tokens to you know to buy into the sale that they're using yeah so for example somebody has hacked an exchange stolen some ether um we've seen uh in some cases that ether being transferred to a an ico crowd sale address um and so they would have received tokens in exchange for that that stolen ether and that's useful for them because if no records are being kept, if no KYC is being done by the by the issuer, then that helps break that link to the illicit source of funds. Mm. And how widespread of a problem do you think that is? Um, so we haven't seen it a great deal, but it's a risk that ICO issuers and banks are actually quite sensitive to. So a problem that a lot of ICO issuers are having at the moment is that they raise these huge amounts through ICOs, convert it into fiat currency, but are then unable to find a bank that will accept those funds. Um, and so a lot of them are turning to us to do an analysis on the source of funds and just verify that it hasn't come from criminal activity. Interesting. Well, as we mentioned before, you kept the study, the focus of the study sort of narrow. So what other questions would you like to answer next time around if you, you know, look more into money laundering and cryptocurrencies? I, mean, I think um, you, actually you, you hit on one, which is uh, on our mind right now, which is what does the landscape look like now that BTCE uh, is gone? Um, I mean, you're, you're very right. You know, back in 2016 and even early part of 2017, you know, BTCE was so prominent. I mean, there were just, you know, just many examples of, of illicit activity going through there. And so with, with, with that being shut down, um, and also the shift in different, uh, darknet markets going down, Alpha Bay being shut down. A, a big question is, um, and I hate to say it like this, but, who is or what is the next BTCE? That's, I think, the the biggest question and something that we want to look at the data and uh, and see what the answer is. Something else I'm curious about is I've heard this stat. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I heard that regulators catch less than one percent of all money laundering that uses fiat. So if that is true, why would a criminal be motivated to use cryptocurrencies? For money laundering, oh, I guess. Well, in in this case of this study, it's because they that's the crime that they like they were earning this money already in crypto. Yeah, I mean, I think you know there are different. So think of crypto as, I mean, as as we know, right? This is money native to the internet. So um, although this has changed, and I think in the earlier days, you you're, you're pretty much you were pretty much talking about folks who are involved in cybercrime, involved in crimes that are, are purely on the internet. And, and it would just make sense. Um, and, you know, if you're dealing with a darknet market, you know, it just makes sense to, to use crypto. It's perfect for that. But I think what's shifting, and, and it's funny, it's sort of a double-edged sword because uh, adoption has been the biggest hurdle. But as adoption increases, it only makes sense that more people who maybe aren't just operating in cyber will eventually start start using crypto. Now, there's one example, which is, um, you know, it's not an outright uh, sort of money laundering case, but 
late last year, there was a woman, you know, or late 2017, there was a woman who Department of Justice indicted for sending money to ISIS. And she did so really through the banks. I mean, she used you know, wire transfers and she was trying to get money to, to Syria, basically. But one of the things that she did was she used her credit cards and she used her credit cards to, to purchase uh, crypto, think Bitcoin and maybe some other cryptocurrencies. But um, so, so he, why would she do that? What was the benefit? Well, if you think about one thing, if you are, let's say, you don't care about your credit and you're just trying to send money to ISIS, right? And you get your uh, a credit card. Now, if you want to, let's say, get a cash advance, you, just, you know, max out your credit cards. You can't do that. You can't use a credit card and then just get cash, you know, max out $10,000, $20,000. But what you could do, uh, at least I know at the time you could, you could purchase $10,000 or $20,000 or $50,000 worth of, of crypto, and, you know, maybe if you had multiple credit cards. So that's one way to quickly get value and then use it for an illicit purpose um, to send to send overseas. Now, she didn't send crypto overseas. She then, you know, went into the banking system. But it just shows that um, this is just one additional tool, one way of circumventing barriers and legal hurdles to try to transact illicitly. Interesting. All right. We're going to talk about privacy coins, bad state actors using crypto and more. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsors. Imagine this. You dedicate countless hours of hard work to creating a smart contract only to be hacked in mere minutes. If you think that can't happen, think again. We hear that $10 billion has been raised through smart contracts, but over $300 million of that has already been compromised. Hackers are hungry for more. So security is not just critical to your success, it's an absolute necessity. And that is where QuantStamp, the standard for smart contract security, comes in. With a team of security audit experts dedicating to defeating the bad guys, the Quant stamp of approval is your solution for safer smart contracts. Find out how we can be the gold standard for security at QuantStamp.com. Why is it that when you change jobs, you lose all that hard-earned credit for all the good things you accomplished? Does it make sense that your performance review is forever stuck at your old company? No. And that's why Preciate is live on the iTunes App Store. Build the real-time story of your most valuable accomplishments as recognized by those who know you best. Preciate is the truest story of you, forever yours to showcase. Big or small, earn credit for all the good you do. It's your career. Own it. Appreciate simple give, get, grow model makes it easy to strengthen relationships by giving recognition while building your own portfolio of accomplishments. Download Appreciate now in the iTunes App Store. Appreciate is powered by the GC protocol. I'm speaking with Yaya Fanusi and Tom Robinson. How are privacy coins like Monero and Zcash affecting your ability to do this type of work? So we are starting to see increased usage of Monero by some criminal actors. Um, so, for example, a number, in fact, most new darknet marketplaces now offer uh, Monero as a payment option, although they, they are also branching out into Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and a few others. Um, we're also starting to see Monero start to be used during the laundering process. So, uh, for example, a ransomware operator might have um, managed to extract some bitcoins out of out of their victims um, in order to prevent people like us being able to trace those funds they might swap into Monero at some point through an exchange and that means that we it's then very difficult to continue uh, following the trail we don't see much or in fact any illicit use of Zcash perhaps surprisingly um, other than the shadow brokers uh, offering some of their uh, dumps in return for Zcash payments. We haven't really seen any uh, darknet adoption of Zcash. And what is a shadow broker? So the shadow brokers were a hacker group um, who were able to uh, steal some exploits and hacking tools uh, from the NSA and I think some other groups and offered those for sale for cryptocurrency. So, for example, the exploit that led to the the WannaCry ransomware outbreak um, that came from that that group. And for Monero, when you said that a lot of them are 
maybe performing ransomware and earning Bitcoin and then exchanging it to Monero so you can't follow the trail. Can't you find out from the exchange who did that? You can as long as the exchange is doing KYC, i.e. they know who their clients are, and that's simply not the case for some exchanges. So, for example, Shapeshift don't do KYC. And for that reason, right. for example, the, um, the funds from the WannaCry ransomware were in Bitcoin, were sent to Shapeshift, and were then converted to Monero. Um, there's not much in that situation you can do to continue um, tracing the funds. Interesting. And yeah, I mean, we've seen this, uh, we've seen examples of, of this hurdle from, from Monero, for example, uh, since 2016, one of the things we've been doing at our center is, uh, tracking some jihadist fundraising campaigns that have been, you know, openly running on social media and on telegram channels, um, that haven't raised a whole lot of money. But the thing is, we've, um, because some of these groups have been very open and have posted their Bitcoin address, uh, we've been able to, do analysis, you know, look at the transactions, go to, you know, let's say even a, a a blockchain, a Bitcoin blockchain browser and just, you know, see what they have, how much money they've raised. And so there was this one jihadist group that apparently is, is based in Syria, operates on Telegram and Twitter. And um, late 2017, we were really just tracking them because they were saying, hey, send us money. We're, we're, we will use it for, for weapons and for supplies. And so we were tracking them for several months, just seeing what they were doing, how much they were raising. And at one point, I remember they, they posted a, a new graphic which said, you know, now you can pay us in Monero. Actually, it wasn't just Monero. They said they had a couple of other cryptocurrencies, but they listed their Monero address. And so um, I hadn't personally, I hadn't really been looking at Monero before. I just hadn't had a, a case uh, with Monero. So I, you know, thought, okay, I said, okay, wow, this is great. Now we've got the Monero address they're using. So I went to the Monero browser that you can look at and you, you know, can put in the address. I put the wallet address in there. And as opposed to the typical Bitcoin browser where you can see all the transactions, see how much is there, um, the Monero browser gives you a prompt once you try to, you know, look at that address. And it literally says something like, are you trying to look at this guy's uh, Monero uh, address. Monero says no. So there's absolutely no access, um, even though it's clear that that is an address. But, you know, I, you know, we couldn't see what was in it, if it, how much it had transacted. Um, so that's just a very real example of the difference between some of the privacy coins and Bitcoin and, and more other public uh, blockchains. And do you have a theory as to why Zcash is not being taken up? The creator of Zcash, by the way, Zuko Wilcox, he was on Unchained. And that's a great episode. If people haven't listened to it, you should go back and check it out. But he did say that. But I I wasn't sure if, you know, if he was <laughs> being totally honest. Yeah. But it, it's interesting that you're confirming that. Yeah, I think it's true. And I think... One of the reasons for that is in the criminal community, there is a huge amount of distrust about Zcash. It's seen as being part of the establishment. You know, it's backed by venture capital money. It works with the big banks. The, the whole ethos behind it is something that they, they distrust, as opposed to Monero, which is very much more just a, an open source project and which they are that therefore more willing to, to put their trust behind. Oh my God. I can't believe it's ideological. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I had, my theory was that I guess it's, it's more expensive to use the privacy yeah. side of it and just more, you it's know, computationally intensive and whatever. And so maybe I just thought it's like a little bit more of a pain to use it in the private format or something. I, I was thinking just along purely practical. Yeah, well, I mean, so, I, huh. yeah, I mean, I, I would personally use the, the the technology that I thought was the most anonymous, but I think ideology in some cases can can trump that. That's interesting. And so, just to draw out the thread there, so if I am a hacker that obtains Monero, Monero is not easily convertible to fiat, I imagine. And so, what I would do is maybe then use Shapeshift again to turn it into Bitcoin and then cash out or something. Is that what you think is going on there? Uh, yes. Yeah, I think that does happen a lot. Um, there are exchanges, though, that um, accept Monero deposits and where you can cash out into to fiat. So it is possible in some places to do that directly. Interesting. 
Let's also talk about what the kind of governmental response has been. Like, if you were to describe the spectrum of responses we're seeing from different countries, what are you noting? What are you noticing there? And has there been an evolution in the state response? Yeah, I mean, if well, it definitely depends on which country, which jurisdiction you're you're talking about. I mean, you know, here in the U.S., uh, as Tom mentioned, there was a pretty, you know, early, early on, there was a, was guidance that was put out. And, and I think that, you know, our study shows that that actually impacted the amount of illicit activity. You know, I think some of the other states, so for example, one of the things that we've been looking at uh, here has been Russia. You know, what what has Russia's reaction been? And, and actually, there's a really interesting pattern uh, that we see with some particularly um, authoritarian governments. I mean, you can draw this parallel across jurisdictions, which is um, people using crypto and then a lot of state, you know, some influential folks in states saying, you know, this should be banned or we need to really restrict this because, you know, one, we can't control it, whether it's concerns about capital flight or concerns about illicit risks. Um, and, you know, back in 20, uh, I think it was 2014, 2015, um, in, in Russia, there was talk about, you know, making it illegal to, to have a, a Bitcoin business. Um, and then we saw in 2016, 2017, there was a shift where, um, instead Instead of talk about banning Bitcoin, the Russian government actually started talking about, ah, maybe we could use this technology, maybe this blockchain technology um, and cryptocurrencies, they, they said sometimes, could be used to evade sanctions. Um, you see something similar in Venezuela, where, you know, you, know, you might have talked before about how, you know, Venezuela has, because of the cheap electricity, um, Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining became very popular. Um, the government was trying to ban that. And then and what did it do in early 20, 2018? It unveiled its own cryptocurrency based on the NEM blockchain. Um, so, um, and, and there's even talk now about Iran. Iran, uh, you know, recently um, has started to crack down on uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin uh, exchanging within the country as its currency has really uh, gone down and is facing more financial pressure because of U.S. sanctions. So um, there is this pattern of some governments being afraid of crypto, then seeing the technology maybe could be used to advance its aims. And then you know they start embar embarking on projects or even investing in the technology. And I think Russia is probably the biggest example of that right now. Yeah, I actually just want to flag for listeners who maybe don't listen to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, you should definitely check out the episode I did with Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation Oh my God, it was such an interesting conversation, but he talked about how Venezuela was what he considered the site of the first crypto war. And he described, you know, what you just mentioned, Yaya, which is people there, obviously, as the Bolivar has crashed, they've been turning to cryptocurrencies and trying to mine them and different things. And the government has been trying to confiscate their equipment. And then of course now has tried to launch their own cryptocurrency. Um, but it was a, a really fascinating conversation and he goes into that a little bit. And I do think uh, that is what's going on there, which is interesting. Um, Yaya, you also mentioned Russia. What do you think, because they are being maybe more proactive in, in, and open toward this technology than a government like the US, at least for now, what significance do you think that could have for, for I guess our relations with that country. Uh, well, it, it's it's a huge geopolitical. Uh, um, uh, I won't say shift. But um, I think it, it may have geopolitical implications depending on how things turn out. Um, so Russia, just to sort of give more of a backdrop, you know, why is, is Russia doing what it's doing? Um, you know, Russian banks, several you know, huge Russian banks are under U.S. and EU sanctions for, um, you know, for, for uh, you know, annexation of Crimea. And so uh, the Russia has sort of felt that it's, uh, you know, that its banking sector is being hindered. Um, by by these sanctions, and so one of the things that um, 
that they started doing is, you know, like like they're doing, like other countries are doing, you know, investing in pilot projects, um, blockchain projects, getting the banking sector to consider using blockchain technology, um, which is again that's sort of par for the course. I think we we see that elsewhere, and, and even in in the U.S., I think it's a little bit different. I don't think the U.S. it's it's that Russia is is a better environment for for blockchain or for crypto. Just that there is a much stronger strategic intent by the leadership of the country to say, okay, we're really going to ramp up and do this so that we don't have to deal with with sanctions. So the implications are, um, uh, you know, if if Russia were to develop and create an alternative system, so like an alternative system to the SWIFT banking system, which is how, you know, banks transfer money around the globe through the, through the regular banking system. You know, if they were able to create a blockchain based system where financial institutions and businesses could transfer value around the globe without going through the traditional banking system, um, theoretically, it would make them maybe more, more, um, more impervious to to U.S. sanctions, to EU sanctions, which means that, um, you know, maybe Russia can do what it wants without less fear of, of international repercussions and financial repercussions. Um, now, I don't think that that's necessarily, even though Russia has pretty much said that it wants to do that, I don't think that that necessarily means that it's going to occur because it's much more difficult. I mean, it's easier said than done. And also, in order for that to work, you know, there would have, it couldn't just be something that Russia does. Russia can't just build a alternative blockchain, you know, a financial network and then, you know, transact with the rest of the world. Other countries would have to buy in. But that's what we're looking at. There's even been, I think, some signaling that Russia is talking to Iran. Um, now that, that, um, you know, that the U.S. Is, has removed the, the nuclear sanction. I'm sorry, has put back the, the JCPOA, the nuclear sanctions. Um, there is an environment where it might be in the interest of a country like Iran to actually cooperate with, with Russia. But again, all of these things right now are still in play. It's not clear how it's all going to fall out. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it does make me think I totally agree with your point that Russia could develop that kind of a system, but it wouldn't be useful unless they had buy-in from other players, because obviously these are networks. And so you need, <laughs> you need other people on the network to make it useful. Um, but it just put in my mind the idea of potentially someday some sort of like crypto network that is just <laughs> moving money between all the bad state actors. I actually, though, wanted to circle back to, to this conversation around Venezuela as well. I wanted to get your take. Have you looked into this sort of like crypto war, as Alex Gladstein had described it, that's going on there? And do you have a sense of a kind of which side is sort of winning out? Because I think my main thing about the Petro is apparently you can't see the transactions there. So do we have any visibility to how well that's doing? We've been looking into the Petro because a lot of our US-based exchange clients are very concerned that they might have some exposure to funds originating from the Petro. And so we, we've looked at the, the smart contracts involved. So originally, the Petro was going to be based on Ethereum. It's going to be an ERC-20 token. Um, but then they switched over to, to NAM. Um, so there is a NAM contract, which is called the Petro, um, which people have referred to. There have been some transactions on it, but nothing on the scale that you'd expect from a, a public crowd sale of tokens on the scale that's been reported. Um, we also have seen no evidence that anybody has actually successfully been able to pay for any tokens in the, in the public crowd sale. So it, it, it's overall very unclear what, what what's actually going on here, if anything at all. Yeah, and I I, I agree. And, you know, the, the way I'd also... Um, you know, categorize, uh, characterize it is, you know, the Petro right now appears to be a failed experiment, but I don't think that it is an insignificant one. I actually think it's, it's pretty significant because it's actually a test case. It's the case of a government which is, you know, um, you know, Involved in human rights abuses, massive corruption under, under sanctions by the U.S., trying to figure out a way to use this technology to undermine those sanctions and to bring value to, to the regime. Um, and I actually think that, you know, the way Venezuela has done it, it shows it's just, you know, very, 
you know, poorly, poorly done. And just, it's, it's been a disaster in terms of uh, their execution, but it actually provides, I think, lessons learned for, unfortunately, for other actors who may be in a similar situation in the future. You know, there have been some reports that Russia has been very supportive of, of this campaign of, of the Petro and, and maybe even be involved or or pulling the strings. It's, it's a little bit unclear, but I, I'd say that this is something that um, other countries and and even other non-state actors could learn from, you know, the the mistakes and all. And what would be some lessons that you think they might learn? Well, you know, you know exactly, you know, which type of blockchain is is more advantageous and um, you know, one one thing is just how they um how they have structured it. So Looking at the, the, the NEM blockchain, you know, I think one, what it looks like from our standpoint is they created the tokens, you know, something called the Petro on the blockchain. And then they said that they would be available for a pre-sale. We can't, we don't really see that. It looks like they've deployed, they've separated the tokens into wallets where from my, from my standpoint, it, it seems like maybe these are the, you know, they've set up wallets which would be used to um, for people to, to to purchase through exchanges or, or what have you, but when you look at Venezuela's infrastructure, they don't really have, they don't really have an a, a thriving or robust exchange um, industry, you yes. know. It, so, so it just really seems like a very like a fumble. They sort of put the cart before the the horse. Yeah, I mean, I think like with any ICO, um, in order for people to have confidence in your token and the value of it, you need to show some basic level of technical aptitude. Otherwise people are going to lose faith. And um, with a patro, it's yeah, just very unclear what, what's going on. Yeah. And I think another lesson to learn would be if they couldn't manage the Bolivar well, then it shouldn't give you a lot of faith in right. <laughs> the Petro. Exactly. Um, and they yeah. also didn't, they didn't get any public, you know, uh, buy-in there. There was not, there was no one country that said, all right, we'll support this, you know, maybe behind closed doors, but nothing, nothing publicly. So w- without that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really, it really has no value. Yeah. It's sort of like someone just going out in the street and saying like, this is valuable, but you know, if other people don't back you, then nobody's going to believe you. One other, and and actually the last lesson that I would hope that people would take away, and or you tell me if this should be a lesson, but I would hope that people would also say that for a project that is centralized, that creates a point of failure if there's kind of like this one organization that's controlling it, but maybe that a decentralized crypto asset would be more successful. Do you think that could be another lesson people might learn? I think so. I mean, I, I, I think this sort of, the Petro hit people out of nowhere and, and, you know, people were sort of unsure what to think about it, but it's, I mean, the way it's played out actually kind of proves the point that, you know, all, all tokens are not created equal. And just because someone, you know, some, some entity says it's creating a a token doesn't mean that, you know, one, it should be supported, that you should try to, you know, that, that you should try to invest in it. And, and so hopefully this sort of raised that issue because I think mostly in the crypto space, there's been this idea of, okay, you know, for, for the, for the, for those, the the folks who love crypto and right are trying to build the, this ecosystem. It's almost like, okay, we want to support this. want to support, you know, innovation. Um, and I think this sort of it brings home the point that, y- you know, every, uh, just because a token is created doesn't mean that it should be supported. And also, I think yes. the idea behind the Petro, the thing that was going to give it its value was the fact that each token was backed by Venezuelan state assets. So I think each one was backed by a, a barrel of oil. And so if you're going to have that kind of backing, I think it's difficult to do that in a decentralized way. There needs to be this central party that you can go back to and redeem the token um, if you want to. Yeah, and trust that they actually will give you right. an oil uh, or a barrel of oil worth yeah. uh, the same value. So speaking of state bad state actors, what about North Korea? <laughs> they were most likely behind the WannaCry attack. Uh, which we mentioned earlier, and some people say they may have been behind some of the hacks of South Korean exchanges. What do you think that they're doing with cryptocurrencies and why? What's their motivation? Tom, do you want to touch on this first? So I I think the primary motivation is just to uh, raise hard currency. 
I think they are looking at ways that they can easily steal money and probably have identified things like ransomware and the, the hacking of exchanges being low-hanging fruit. And so that's what they've targeted. I think that probably also has implications for, for sanctions, Yo-Yo. Yes, it it does, but I, I often sort of um, sort of temper people's expectations with the idea of major, or, I, or at least I I think the the scope and scale is important to note because you know North Korea has a very robust sanctions evasion uh, operation, you know, and it, it involves using actually using the banking system, using you know Chinese you know partnering with certain Ch- Chinese banks that allow it to to operate um, shipping. Like so, so many other very real world ways, um, front companies, right, to 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 launder funds and also to evade sanctions. And uh, like with many things with crypto, this is a, an experimentation period. So th- I think the implications are okay. Hmm, so North Korea is stealing crypto. They're doing ransomware. They're they're stocking up probably. So that does mean that there's going to be, um, that they're going to use it, right? That's a way for them to gain capital. But it doesn't compare to the to the the scope of what they're doing elsewhere. I think it just, it, it does mean that we have to, um, you know, those that are concerned about proliferation and what North Korea is doing, um, you know, have to be mindful that it is trying to learn. It is trying to, to, to get involved in this technology. And so that the implications may be stronger in the horizon, but, um, you know, but limited now. I think one other interesting thing here is there are some indications that the the people who perpetrated these attacks weren't necessarily in North Korea and that perhaps these attacks have been outsourced to hacker groups. And I think that's a a trend we're starting to see, which which has been enabled by cryptocurrencies, this idea as cybercrime as a service. Um, So previously, we would have had the people who were willing to commit the criminal activity and the people who had the technical aptitude to actually do it. And with cryptocurrencies and dark net marketplaces, we now have um, the ability, well, there's now the potential for these people to come together and pay each other to, to do part of the, the job for them. So, for oh, example, you can buy ransomware kits on dark marketplaces, or you can commission somebody to build some custom ransomware for you. Um, and that's being enabled through the semi-anonymous cryptocurrency payments. Oh, wow. And when you say kit, it's like a software program. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah. So you can specify, for example, what Bitcoin address the uh, the victim's fund should be sent to. Huh. I would imagine that that kind of cybercrime as a service would be especially important for a country like North Korea, where they're essentially imprisoning all the citizens, you know, like blocking them off from the outside world, not letting them travel outside the country, brainwashing them, like all those things. Because if any of their citizens were trained in how to obtain cryptocurrencies on their own, then they could very easily be like, oh, this is like my way out of the country. I can raise enough money to pay my way out to South Korea or whatever it might be. So I could see them hiring that out. Out of curiosity, though, so let's say that I am a North Korean uh, or, or I'm North Korea and I've hacked people for or performed ransomware to obtain Bitcoin, then maybe I convert that to Monero to kind of launder the money and then convert it back to Bitcoin in some fashion. How do I cash out? You know, is it just a matter of finding an exchange that doesn't do KYC or, or what? Yeah, I mean, you, you probably have. So because they, they are, you, you really just need to plug into the, the, um, the money laundering apparatus that they already have. So they already have individuals, companies that serve as fronts, uh, in the shipping industry. One of the things that, that, you know, North Korea uses, um, or one of the things that they do is, you know, they will get luxury goods. So, you know, while the, the, the country, the, the regular people are starving, you know, the, the regime, um, has, you know, luxury goods uh, that it purchases. And, you know, you could use, um, you could, 
you know, easily find ways to, um, you know, integrate your funds within the regular banking system and make make those purchases. So, I mean, using cutouts is what most illicit actors do. So cutouts being, you know, someone who's someone who is quote unquote clean, who is going to open up the bank account or open up the exchange account or run the business. And that person, because they don't have, uh, you know, ostensibly any clay, any uh, connections to the illicit actor, that person is your face. That's your proxy. But that happens in the money laundering world in general. And there's no reason why um, people can't do that in crypto and in fact they they do and in fact so um most of the exchange well in fact all the exchanges in china have now been closed down but i understand there is a thriving peer-to-peer and network of um cryptocurrency brokers there i would imagine it'd be fairly easy for north korea to use one of those brokers in order to to get into cash oh interesting so it's sort of like local bitcoins but in china right and probably, I, I guess, for much bigger amounts of money. So moving on from just bad state actors, in general, how much interest is there in state-sponsored cryptocurrencies? I mean, I think that's, um, I think there's a lot of interest. I think there is a spectrum where some, some states are saying, you, you know, let's stay, we don't want to do anything. We don't want to do central bank, um, cryptocurrencies or digital currencies, but, um, there's huge interest. Um, and I, in, in particular, I think some of the countries that are becoming more cashless, like some of the, um, Scandinavian countries where there's not a lot of cash, um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, or at least there, there, there's discussion about using or creating central banked, uh, central bank, sorry, central bank digital currencies, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, as sort of an old, you know, as something to just add on to the fiat world. So there's actually, I mean, even, even the Fed has, you know, the Fed is looking at it. You know, there's several different folks in the Fed have, have talked about this. I think most are skeptical about, you know, uh, independent cryptocurrencies, but it actually makes sense. I mean, the, the argument of, you know, not Bitcoin, but blockchain sort of resonates with, with folks because there are a lot of risk. I mean, in, in central banks, it's their mission to sort of maintain the, the monetary system. They're not going to just open up and just latch on to a totally permissionless system. But the idea of a permission system, um, yes, a lot of the advanced economies are, are at least looking at it. So I think, I think it's fascinating. I think it would have some massive implications. So if everybody could effectively hold central bank money directly, then we have to ask, what is the point of traditional banks? I wouldn't need to have a, a, an account at my local bank. I could have a central bank digital currency wallet on my phone. Um, and so if that happens, what is the process of credit creation? Who lends to businesses and individuals? Um, Perhaps that is, uh, well, it already is becoming more the case that peer-to-peer lending is taking over that role from banks. So I think it's a fascinating topic and I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Yeah. And one thing, if I can add, just to think about is a lot of times I think, um, even the governments, you know, think that this would be a way to go, even let's say in Russia and in China, um, and trying to create their own digital currency, they're thinking that, Hey, this is a way to displace the, you know, Bitcoin and, and, and the regular cryptocurrencies. But you have to think about it. If, if it, there is a central bank, digital currency, it also means you're going to sort of have to build an infrastructure, right? Where people are, are using this, this centralized crypto. And I wonder if that would actually make demand for the regular cryptocurrencies, the permissionless ones to, to actually increase, right? If you sort of enable people to get used to this method of transacting, of having, you know, wallets, um, on their phone, um, you're not going to be able to, unless you're in a a purely authoritarian country um, keep people from from using the regular cryptocurrencies so you may actually increase the competition um, you know depending on how you do it yeah and something else that I wonder is for you know I sort of feel like this competition would play out it would be like maybe bad state actors with cryptocurrencies people may not trust those cryptocurrencies and so in those markets you might see an increase in trust in these decentralized ones. And then I just wonder how that competition would play out if you had cryptocurrencies that were state sponsored that were maybe non bad state actors, you know, would would the decentralized ones still win out anyway, that is kind of an interesting question to me. And then the other thing that actually I'd been thinking about recently was 
about how people in Venezuela and Zimbabwe and in Argentina and places like that have been driven because of hyperinflation to turn to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and others. And it just got me thinking that it sort of pushes adoption um, in these developing countries primarily, and maybe not Argentina, but but I think you know Venezuela and and Zimbabwe. Whereas, like in a place like the U.S. or you know, like Sweden or Norway or something, where the the money is good and you trust it and you don't feel any need, that you would see sort of this reverse adoption where the technology takes off in a place where technology traditionally hasn't taken off first. And then the citizens in those countries are sort of like one step behind, which is kind of interesting. People often point out to the adoption of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in in these environments where the, you know the the monetary system is sort of you know collapsed. But I again, I would sort of people's enthusiasm needs to be tempered because or curbed because. You know, this is a sort of a coping mechanism. It's, you know, crypto, people just need to keep in mind that crypto is not necessarily solving the problem. You know, these countries are facing like economic crises and political crises that, you know, the, even if, 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 um, you know, the the population, you know, needs some sort of help and, and crypto can help, uh, it, it, you know, it's not fixing, you know, the, the crisis. It's not solving the crisis. So there, there, you know, none of this can be seen in isolation. A couple last questions. Earlier in the spring, OFAC said it was going to begin putting individual digital currency addresses on its blocked persons list. Why is this significant? And what could such a designation mean for any coins that are associated with those addresses? I mean, I'll say you know something here in terms of um, it's really unclear what you know how this is going to play out. I mean, I think this was a signal from from Treasury, from you know OFAC, the office that deals with sanctions and designates people and entities, that um, th- they had to say that you know they're aware that there is a new method of transacting that um, may not. It may not fall within the framework, uh, or people might have thought might not fall within the, the sanctions framework. And the signal was, well, no, it does. And we're not going to be, um, held back in, in terms of listing. But, um, so if, if Treasury does start designating, I think, I don't think it'll have, uh, it'll make a huge difference for, let's say, just the everyday person trading crypto. But then I do think it does have implications for, for institutions, for exchanges, because now you've, the bar will be raised in terms of, um, allowing what you allow and your, your sort of levels of compliance to ensure that no one on your platform is transacting one with a, a blocked address or an address which is transacting with an address. There's going to be more scrutiny there. Um, so I think it could have um, implications uh, to that. Maybe is also the, the fungibility of tokens. That's something that people have talked about. Um, but it really depends on on how this is going to play out because I'm not sure that Treasury, you know, designating an address is going to stop that actor from from operating in crypto. Yeah, so um, we will be adding these sanctioned cryptocurrency addresses to our database. And the implication of that is that if an exchange is using our AML software and one of their users receives funds from a sanctioned address or tries to send funds to one, then that will be flagged up to them. And so that we'll be able to use that software to avoid transacting with, with sanctioned entities. So in addition to lost coins, we will see coins that are just sort of locked in these blocked addresses (laughs) that stop being circulated. So Yaya, you advocated for a self-policing AML platform to prevent the tainting of coins associated with the OFAC list. How would such a platform work? You know, um, this is where, you know, I I put this suggestion out as a way to sort of um, provoke discussion as to how it should work. Because, you know, at the end of the day, my sense is that 
folks in crypto are sort of waiting for, you know, for someone else, for the government, for some other sort of regulatory entity to, you know, to sort of be the the policeman, right? Or the, 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 the police officer. What I'm trying to point out is that in other realms, like let's say in the cyber realm, you actually have a vibrant community of folks that try to, that use their cyber skills to, um, you know, to try to find hack, find hackers and find vulnerable vulnerabilities, right? You have the white hat, white hat, black hat thing. And I think there should be something similar in crypto. I think that um, in order, because, because this technology allows for such transparency, it just seems that there should be cooperation uh, amongst folks that love the technology, that are building the technology to try to ensure that there, that there are, um, you know, that there are flags on, on, on illicit activity. Yeah, so, I don't so, know. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. So Elliptic is kind of starting to become that intermediary. So our customers, be they exchanges, law enforcement agencies, regulators are starting to feed to us addresses that they know through their own research or associated with criminal activity. And then we will put all those addresses together in our system. So everybody has access to that, that information. We also work with a number of threat intelligence companies um, to get the, that same kind of data. Um, so the, the private sector is, I think, stepping into that role at the moment. Great. Well, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Thank you both so much. Where can people learn more about your work? Well, you can uh, find me uh, at or on Twitter at sign curve, S I G N curve. Um, and also you could look at, uh, defenddemocracy.org. That's, uh, FDD's website. And you can find out more about elliptic, including our research at elliptic.co. It's E double L I P T I C dot co. Great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you, thank you very much. It's been great. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Yaya and Tom, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Sosison, Rahul Sinki Reddy, and Daniel Nuss. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.